Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. I'm with Keaton Ross, who covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. On September 15th, several dozen news outlets will participate in Democracy Day, a nationwide effort to provide voters with reliable information and raise awareness of anti-democratic threats. Keaton is here to discuss the vision behind the day and Oklahoma Watch's publication plans. Keaton, who started uh, Democracy Day and what are they hoping to accomplish? Yeah, so this is an effort from the Center for Collaborative Journalism. Um, and this is just, you know, several uh, news outlets, uh, news editors, leaders, and some academic folks who have noticed a trend over the past few years of, you know, a lot of misinformation, elected officials downplaying, you know, threats to uh, democracy, you know, a lot of people refusing to acknowledge or accept the results of elections. And this is kind of an effort to to raise awareness of those threats and also provide reliable information, uh, be it voter guides, uh, ways to spot information, that sort of thing. What kinds of stories have reporters been working on uh, in days and weeks leading up to this? Yeah, so a uh, a lot of it has been uh, kind of what I mentioned, just looking at, you know, in individual communities and states, kind of uh, what's going on as far as, uh, you know, how elected officials are responding to, uh, you know, these, these, uh, this rhetoric that's kind of out there, um, whether, you know, they're, they're following these norms of accepting the results or saying they'll accept the results. Uh, that sort of thing, um, and also just trying to give uh, people as much reliable, good information as possible heading into the midterm election, um, just, you know, so people can kind of be ready for, for what's coming as far as uh, misinformation and whatnot. What, what kind of content can Oklahoma Watch readers expect to see on Thursday? Yeah, so I've put together uh, basically a voter guide that uh, lists all the upcoming deadlines, uh, as well as some some common questions about uh, who's eligible to vote, uh, what you can expect of the polls, uh, and also some uh, kind of tips and uh, advice as far as like if you notice something unusual at the polls or what what you should expect, that sort of thing, just so um, everyone can kind of go into election day with on the same page as far as what the law is and what should and shouldn't be happening. Well, could you give us a, a little thumbnail of how election results in Oklahoma are counted and verified? Yeah, so Oklahoma has a digital machine that that takes in your paper ballot. Uh, that machine isn't connected to the internet. It can't be hacked in that way. Um, and in the, the weeks and months leading up to the election, um, state election board employees are, are working to ensure those machines are working properly. Um, and, you know, maintenance is, is ongoing leading up to the election. Um, and then those, the machine counts the votes and then uh, they're later verified by the, the state election board, usually a week or so after 
the election concludes. Have state officials noted any kind of election fraud or irregularities in recent years? They haven't. Uh, we even saw back in the June primary after that election, uh, the state conducted its first post-election audit, and uh, there was no discrepancy between uh, the results that they verified that the machines counted and uh, the audit. So um, Oklahoma's election system is very secure, um, and, and voters can be confident that that their vote will be counted correctly. Now, you know, false claims are bound to pop up on social media uh, over the next few weeks. What What's the best way to spot misinformation? Yeah, so experts really recommend uh, two tips uh, when you're when you're navigating, you know, social media or coming across news online. Uh, the first is just to check check your source, um, check if what you're reading is, you know, a, a a trusted news outlet or, you know, it's very common these days that you'll see uh, something that appears to be legitimate, but in actuality is not. Um, you know, a, a, a verified news outlet with journalistic standards. Um, and the other, the other tip is just to check your bias. You know, if you're, if you're reading something and you're, you're really agreeing with it, or it's something emotional is stirring up within you, uh, it's probably designed that way, um, to elicit that reaction. And, uh, you know, so, so check your source and check your bias. And I, I think it would be, uh, Fair to say, when you're trying to determine if it's a legitimate news source, one one big flag there is if it's reporting independent, independently verifiable information, right? That it's it's giving where the information came from, and you can go find that on your own. You don't just have to take their word for it. That's correct. Yes. Uh, now, election deadlines will start popping up here in mid-October. What are the key dates that Oklahomans might want to be aware of? Yeah, so the first one coming up is October 14th, so about a month from now is the deadline to register to vote and be eligible to vote in the November 8th election. Uh, so that one will be uh, about three to four weeks before uh, the actual election day. Uh, and then the other one to be aware of is October 24th, um, about 15 days before the election is the deadline to request an absentee ballot if, if you're planning to do that instead of going to the, the polls in person. You know, we've heard about some changes in election uh, systems. Is there a way that Oklahomans can confirm that they're registered to vote and double check where to vote and that kind of thing? Yeah, so that you can do that on the, the Oklahoma voter portal. It's OK portal dot elections dot us i believe and you can go and put in your information there your name first name last name date of birth and uh, verify your polling place uh, your party affiliation and sample ballots aren't up yet but they should be in the next couple of weeks or so all right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can uh, read all of Keaton's Democracy Day coverage at OklahomaWatch.org, where you can also subscribe to his weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm talking to reporter Paul Monies. He's been tracking multiple projects that want funding from the latest round of federal pandemic relief money under the American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA. Lawmakers have been meeting in recent weeks to review projects in advance of a special section that we're expecting to see later this month. 
Paul, can you give us a recap of how much money the state has to spend and what the priorities are for lawmakers? Yeah, so under the American Rescue Plan Act, uh, Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma has about $1.87 billion to spend on various projects. Um, they put out a, a lot of requests last last year for uh, applications and got about 1,400 applications, totaling almost $18 billion. So there's a lot of demand out there for some of the projects. Now, earlier this year in June, they had um, a couple of days in a special session uh, where they've allocated about $200 million in previous projects, including some workforce development stuff, water infrastructure things, and broadband. Oh, we've been hearing lawmakers want to make some significant investments in mental health facilities. Is that right? What What are the latest uh, on that? That's right. So um, some of the working groups have approved projects that sent on to the, the joint committee um, in the legislature that looks at these. And the latest ones would include uh, one that would replace the, the aging uh, Griffin Memorial Hospital for uh, mental health treatment in Norman. Um, that's about an $87 million project to replace that. That, that um, dates to, you know, the last century, more than 100 years old for parts of that, that campus. Uh, it would expand that by about 100 beds to bring a total capacity of about 275 adult beds and uh, about 55 beds for adolescents and behavioral health treatment. And then... Secondary to that is uh, about $38 million that they've approved to go to the Tulsa Center for Behavioral Health to add about 50 beds. Um, that $38 million that the state will commit on ARPA funds would go along with another about $26 million that they've already raised from private and uh, philanthropic sources. Now, what else have lawmakers passed on to the House and Senate for final approval? So in recent weeks, they've, they've uh, had about a total of $320 million in projects ranging from you know, $50 million in water grants to various places around the, the state uh, that they can apply for uh, through the Oklahoma Water Resources Board. They've also um, approved $44 million for the University Hospitals Authority to get electronic health record systems set up at OU Health in Oklahoma City. And then about $26 million for the State Department of Health to get el electronic health records for their county health departments. And they're right now on facts and paper files at these county health departments, and it's not very efficient at all. Now, there's been some uh, some talk, some allegations from lawmakers about delays in projects that have already been approved. Is that right? That's right. Lawmakers have approved a couple of projects late last year um, that have not been funded yet, and they've kind of gotten a little bit frustrated about that. In fact, they, they went into a special session um, in May to basically – take control of the, the ARPA process uh, back kind of from the governor's office and executive. And so they have a whole new system in place that they will basically parallel kind of the, the typical budget appropriation cycle by getting these projects along committees and uh, approved by the full House and Senate. Uh, now, the governor's office has said that, you know, they're not holding up anything. They're waiting when they wait, they get the enactment clause on some of these bills that have passed already or some were done in emergency, which means they go into effect immediately. Some were not, and so that means it takes 90 days before they go into effect. And so it's just kind of a, a waiting game sometimes to get everything in place. And the governor's office said that they're definitely not holding up any funds once they're approved. What other priorities are being uh, contemplated by uh, the ARPA committees? Yeah, so the, the lawmakers have kind of got some broad areas they want to focus on, including um, building out broadband across the state, uh, lots of water infrastructure projects that have been kind of languishing in various states for, for, for years and sometimes decades. Uh, they're looking at, obviously, uh, the pandemic exposed a lot of the gaps in healthcare and human services and workforce needs, looking at 
re kind of doing the pipeline to, to get new employees and new, new people into those professions. And of course, because this is pandemic related, also looking at a lot of mental health, mental, mental health and behavioral health projects that would help folks that have kind of struggled with their issues in, during the pandemic. One of the next batch of uh, those pandemic relief projects come up before the special session. That's right. So the, the special session um, is kind of ongoing. It's basically, you know, adjourned to the call of the chair, which basically means they can come back anytime they want to. Uh, the last indications we got was the House was looking at possibly September 28th to 30th of this month um, to come come back and approve some of the projects that the working group has and the joint committee have already approved. The Senate, probably similar time. They were not completely confirmed on that timeline, but they may, may meet separately a couple of days before or after that session for this latest uh, special session. All right, well, what happens to that special session after the November election? Well, because this is a special session tied to the legislature and how the election cycle works, um, that will just basically dissolve itself uh, in a week or so after the election um, or earlier if they decide to adjourn that special session too. So um, lawmakers have told me that they, they'd like to try and get the lion's share of this $1.87 billion allocated at least uh, this year. They would prefer not to go into the regular session when it starts up in February just because they've got so many other projects and priorities like the budget and policy things to do in the regular session. They'd rather not have to keep dealing with some of the ARPA stuff. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read all Paul's ongoing coverage of the ARPA money and that nearly $2 billion uh, to be allocated for projects in Oklahoma on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Lana Ramos covers race and equity at Oklahoma Watch. He recently spent the day at a House interim study focused on the rights of tenants and dilapidated living conditions in low-income apartments across the state. Lionel, who called for the interim study and who attended? The study was hosted by House District 93 Representative Mickey Dollins. He's a Democrat from Oklahoma City. Uh, And some of the other legislators that were there included Representative Regina Goodwin, a Democrat from Tulsa. Representative Steve Bayshore, a Republican from Miami, and uh, Re- Representative Judge Strom, uh, also Republican from Copan. Uh, there were nine presenters from organizations like Housing Solutions, Restore Hope Ministries, and Oklahoma Access to Justice Foundation, as well as a handful of tenants' rights attorneys, some private uh, practice attorneys, and very few members of the public, like four or five, I think I counted when I was there. Now, uh, the last time we talked about this uh, here on the Long Story Short podcast, It was about substandard living conditions specifically for Afghan refugees in Oklahoma City and Tulsa. How is this related? Right. So the story about what Afghan refugees are going through in our major metros is a very narrow look at what I'm now finding to be a very widespread problem across the state. Uh, That of Oklahomans living in apartments owned by out-of-state landlords who are taking advantage of the state's lack of anti-retaliation laws and allowing their units to fall apart while they have people living in them, and then (laughs) evicting those people when they go and complain. Uh, What are anti-retaliation laws? What are we talking about? I'm specifically talking about the Oklahoma Residential Landlord and Tenant Act, which hasn't seen any substantial changes since it was enacted in 1978. Uh, The latest change was in 2015, where they added a, a provision that if a tenant repairs something in their apartment, they can deduct that from their rent. Um, the, the law, as it stands right now, offers very few protections for renters when it comes to landlords evicting them 
and even fewer ways to hold landlords accountable for failing to meet minimum living standards set by the state and in some cases municipalities themselves. So maybe you can give us an example of when a renter might need some kind of protection. Sure. So a a good example provided by Shandy Campo of uh, the Landlord Tenant Resource Center in Tulsa uh, is really a classic one. If a month-to-month renter raises concerns about their living conditions with an inspection or enforcement agency, their landlord can give them 30 days to leave the premises and refuse to rent to them without any repercussions at all. Uh, How much of this has to do with out-of-state landlords? Quite a bit, actually. One of the most frustrating things that was mentioned was the fact that there are landlords in places like Arizona, California, Texas, and Florida who own one or, in many cases, a a few apartment complexes here in Oklahoma and are really out of touch with the needs of their tenants and really hard to get a hold of. Uh, They can evict people and not be held accountable. And I should note that the states mentioned have anti-retaliation laws, which makes it much harder to ignore the tenants in those states when they do complain because doing so would result in something like a fine or even entire complexes being shut down. Now, do other states uh, have a similar problem? Yes. Oklahoma is is one of six states that don't have anti-retaliation laws, along with Wyoming, North Dakota, Missouri, Louisiana, and Idaho. Now, is anybody working to change that in Oklahoma? So there are a few people that are working to change this. Uh, there are the private attorneys that I had mentioned, and then there are nonprofit organizations that offer uh, housing solutions. Um, community cares partners, for example, is getting federal money to provide rental and utility assistance to renters. Um, but once someone is evicted or they go and complain, the only thing they can actually do is go find that lawyer, um, which has to be at one of these nonprofits because it's the only way that they're going to find a free lawyer. Because if someone's getting evicted, they likely can't pay that price for private representation. So uh, renters end up uh, kind of on their own. There's no legislative uh, changes or fixes in the pipeline that we know of? No, there aren't. uh, So nothing concrete. Uh, Representative Dolans is hoping to line up with some Republicans in the legislature and pass tenant protections, uh, which... He and many at the other, many others at the interim study uh, said are way overdue. What those look like, um, really just provisions for, for uh, tenants to <laughs> be able to make that complaint to a fire marshal, for example, or, or a county health department, have someone come and inspect and be like, hey, ex-landlord has to pay a fine type thing, or complex can't be lived in, has to be shut down. That's what they're looking at. Uh, whether that or not that stuff gets passed in the legislature is, is kind of up in the air. In 1978, when the Landlord-Tenant Act passed, there were anti-retaliation provisions in it, and the legislature took them out. Uh, we're still trying to figure out why. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. Uh, you can read all of Lionel's work on uh, substandard housing, the Landlord-Tenant Act, uh, and other topics on our website at oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.
Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.